Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the fasting practice. Hey, um, my name is John Mark. Last week we kicked off a brand new practice on fasting. If you were not here, please go back and listen to the podcast. From here on, our teaching will focus um, on the reasons behind fasting. And we said last week there are three basic, when you kind of summarize it all, there are three basic reasons for fasting. One is to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. Two is to pray. And three is to stand in solidarity with the poor. We covered, number one, to starve the flesh. And note, not the body. If you weren't here, listen to the podcast. But the flesh and feed the spirit last week. And so next up on the docket is to pray. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 13 if you're not there. Anybody ever feel stuck in prayer? Or is that just me? Anybody ever feel like there is a wall between you and heaven, and you're not sure if you're the one who put up the wall or if it was on God's side, and you sit down to pray, and even if you're like far enough now into the way of Jesus that you know, you know, okay, to turn your phone off and all of that, put away distractions, still, there's no on-off switch for your mind. And if your mind is anything like mine, either it's like revved up to 100 miles per hour and spinning out of control, like with anxiety and worry and a to-do list and squirrel, or it's tired and sluggish and there's a bit of a fog over the top of it and I can't really focus on anything but the TV screen. Um, or maybe the problem, you don't feel like it's on your end. Your mind is just fine, but for some reason, your prayer just can't break through that wall. And you feel like, as far as you can tell, your prayer is in line with God's heart, but for some reason, it goes unanswered. And you know that why some prayers are answered and others are not is one of the great mysteries of the universe. You get that, but still, you can't shake the feeling that you could be doing something more. Is this just me here, or does anybody relate? Is there a practice from the way of Jesus, from the life and the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, to aid and amplify our prayer life, to break through that wall at the right time? And the answer, of course, is yes, and it's fasting. Take a look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, after they had, what? Fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Notice that word pairing of fasting and prayer. We read about that dual fasting and prayer all through the library of Scripture, from the Old Testament through to the book of Acts, more than just once in the book of Acts, and throughout the New Testament. You can pray without fasting, and you can fast without praying, but it seems like when you put the two together, they play off of each other. And that comes as no surprise, since fasting is a kind of praying with your body. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight calls it body talk. It's very similar to what we do in worship by singing, where we lift our hands. That's just a way, again, of praying with your body, a symbolic way, but it's kind of like that to the nth degree. It's a way of praying with your whole person. 
And if that sounds odd to you, like you're in good company, I think that one of the reasons that fasting is basically a lost practice in our late modern Western church is because we have been so conditioned by the Enlightenment, and in particular by Descartes, and his view of human beings is what he called res cogitans in Latin, or thinking things. As Thomas Edison said, the chief function of the body is to carry the brain around. You all remember that from grade school. So in that kind of a Western worldview, it's hard for us to wrap our head around the idea of a kind of prayer that comes not from our mind but from our stomach. But fasting is the best way I know to express our hunger to God. And by hunger, I don't just mean our desire for food. Thomas Ryan, Catholic priest, author of The Sacred Art of Fasting, puts it this way, hunger is a feeling of emptiness, of desire for sustenance, It can also refer to non-food-related desire or craving, as in hungry for success or hungry for power. One of Webster's definitions is lacking needful or desirable elements, not fertile, poor. Hunger is the state of not having what we need or want and yearning for it. Fasting is the best way I know to express that kind of a hunger for God himself and for God to move in our life. Now, we have to be careful here, because just to clarify, fasting is not a hunger strike to manipulate, to put extra pressure, like start a hashtag campaign against God, to get God to cave into our whims and wishes. We're not Gandhi up against the, you know, British Empire on a hunger. Like, we're sons and daughters of the Father. We had a debate as a teaching team, I think, last week over this very simple question, does God hear us better when we're hungry? And at first pass, all of us said, well, no, of course not. That's ludicrous. You know, you whisper a prayer to heaven and a passing thought, and God is there. And yet, for most of us, that's not actually what life with Jesus is like. I can't help but think of God through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29, quote, you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me, notice this, when you seek me with all of your heart. What does that even mean? When you seek me with all of your heart. There is something about the seeking and the finding that God finds value in. And frankly, I don't even get all of this. My leading theory, this is not chapter and verse, theory is that it's not because God is aloof or busy running the universe and with the government shutdown um, or whatever, it's because God is relational and there is something about really seeking Him with all of your heart that He as a relational being, as a father with a son or a daughter that He responds to. It's what A.W. Tozer called the pursuit of God. Another mid-century writer, Arthur Wallace, in my favorite book on fasting um, called God's Chosen Fast, writes this, how often we have made earnest prayer to God for some specific need with the assurance that this was in the will of God, and yet there's been no answer from heaven. Why? It could well be, and often is, that God is saying to us, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, end quote, Jeremiah. When a man is willing, and forgive the language, this is, I know, male-centric, it's from the 50s. That doesn't make it okay, but you know. When a man is willing to set aside the legitimate appetites of the body to concentrate on the work of praying, he is demonstrating that he means business, that he is seeking with all his heart and will not let God go unless he answers. 
So it's not a hunger strike, but it is a way of expressing our hunger for God or for God to move in our life with a prayer, not just from our mind, but from our whole person. Now, prayer is a broad category, so let me flesh out five subcategories of prayer for which fasting is a natural ally. If you're taking notes, go ahead and uh, get to work. First off is to repent. Scripture, I know it's a bit of a dirty word, but just hear me out. It is an idea that I really believe we need to recapture. Scripture is full of examples of fasting to repent before God. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, oh, by the way, that phrase turn back is uh, this word naham. It can be translated repent in Hebrew or tosub. Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, if you're repenting, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths. Commit yourselves to the Lord. Serve him only. He'll deliver you. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, assemble everybody at Mizpah and I will intercede. I will pray with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Here's another one from 1 Kings 21. This is at the tail end of a story about King Ahab, which you've ever read the Old Testament. He is by far the worst king, and that is saying something. And at the very end of his life, there's a dire warning from the prophet Elijah, basically a short version, you're going to die. Then we read this. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and what? He fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? You got to love, like, just chatting it up with the prophet Elijah. Like, have you noticed, like, you know, Ahab, he's turned around. Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. But the greatest example is Yom Kippur, or in our English translation, it's the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. Hold a sacred assembly, deny yourselves, or that can be translated afflict yourselves, and present a food offering to the Lord. Give your food to God. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, not a one-time thing, but every single year. Wherever you live, it is a day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny or afflict yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe yourselves. I'm sorry, you are to observe your Sabbath. Interestingly here, and in other places in Hebrew literature, this phrase, to deny yourselves, or it can be translated to afflict yourselves, is a synonym for fasting. That's what Moses is getting at here. Some of you are like, you lost me, I'd afflict myself. I was out at that point. This is a sales pitch for fasting. To this day, Orthodox Jews fast for a full 24 hours, evening to evening, every single year on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, to repent for all of the previous year's sins. Now, before you mock that as pre-modern masochism or some religious guilt trip or weird form of self-hatred in need of therapy, think about how our culture, our secular Western culture, even our Christian culture at times, has little to no place for confession of sin. And think about all of the unhealthy and immature and at times toxic ways that guilt and shame live in the back of our mind and in all of the comments on YouTube. 
even in the church, in the Protestant tradition that I grew up in, we don't have like confession. That's a Catholic thing. And so, and often you hear people kind of in the Protestant tradition kind of mock that or make fun of it a little bit. And so how do we do it? Well, usually when we sin, um, I don't sin, but in theory, when I hear about people who struggle, um, you know, usually we, we just tell God that we're sorry in our mind. And then we just try to move on and not think about it. Or maybe we tell God that we're sorry in our mind and we come down and we eat and we drink and we say it again in our mind and then we try to move on or really try to like be extra good or something for a few days. Is that really any better? And then so often we live with this like hangover of guilt or shame or a mild depression or a sense of insecurity or where exactly am I at? And none of that of course is from the Spirit of God. So where is that coming from? My, my point is, fasting is a way to repent well, to afflict yourself for a time, not out of masochism or self-hate or even out of penance, but in order to sincerely apologize to God for your sins and then to move on in freedom, to feel the full weight of your sin settle over your heart in order to then also feel Jesus take the full weight of that sin off of your life. It's what every good parent does with a little boy or a little girl. You teach them to apologize. I have three children. Like, they don't naturally grovel at your feet, unfortunately. They don't. Like, you have to teach them that, <laughs> which I've yet to figure out that part. But, like, they naturally are just like, uh, they get in trouble like, oh, or they you know, I have two boys. They're just, I, this is embarrassing to admit, but they hit each other once a year or so, you know? And all three of my children share a room, and it's tiny, and, you know, so there's just a little bit of violence in the Comer household. We're working on it. But, like, the natural bent is just, oh, okay, sorry, whatever, and move on. But that doesn't, like, reconcile the relationship. And so you have to teach your children, stop, make eye contact, take a deep breath, say, I'm sorry, then four, fill in the blank of your sin, will you please forgive me? Wait, and then we make them say something they like about each other and hug, and they have to. You're like, sorry, if you wanna eat, you will do this, all right? <laughs> like, my point is, like, if you're a decent parent, this is basic, like, you teach your, you have to teach people how to apologize well. This is not rocket science. Scott McKnight, in writing about this passage, says, the Israelites were told to make their life uncomfortable for an entire day in order to bring their entire person into harmony, listen, with the gravity of sin and the need to turn from sin toward God. That's what repentance is. At the very core of fasting is, listen, empathy with the divine or participation in God's perception of a sacred moment. When someone dies, God is grieved. When someone sins, particularly egregiously, God is grieved. When a nation is threatened, God is grieved. We could provide more examples. The point is this, fasting empowers us to empathize with God. So fasting, unlike you know, its counterpart, the spiritual discipline of feasting, is not like a feel-good kind of practice or discipline. That's not the point. The point is for you to tune in with God's emotions around a particular event in your life or world. What if next time that you or I need to repent? What if we were not to just say sorry to God in our mind and move on? What if we were to confess to God and to our family and to fast and to pray? 
Secondly, on that note is to grieve. 1 Samuel again, chapter 31, we read this story. They took down, this is after the death of Saul and his son Jonathan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his son from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. That's an ancient burial rite. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. And this was actually not a one-time event. This was very common, a Hebrew way in the ancient world to process grief. Take a look at Nehemiah chapter 1. One of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. This is really bad news. You ever got like really bad news? The email's there, the phone call, the text, and it's horrible news. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, we don't know how long, I mourned and what? Fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, this is the exact opposite of our culture. In our culture, when we face a tragedy, the death of a loved one or a diagnosis or a crisis, we usually turn to food, not away from it. So my first impulse when a friend or family member or somebody in my community, something bad happens, my first impulse is to pick up the phone and say, we're bringing you food. Like, dairy and carbs Thursday night at 6 p.m. We'll be there, right? Comfort food of some kind. But have you ever noticed that when something really sad happens, what is your body's natural instinct around food? It's not to eat, right? Your, your appetite goes away. Think of like the proverbial grandma saying, I know you're sad, but you really need to eat something because you're, something is going on in your body. I'm not a doctor. I don't know what it is. But something is going on in your body. What if your body is trying to tell you something? Again, McKnight writes this, body grief, that's what he calls this kind of fasting, body grief is perhaps one of the purest examples of what fasting is all about. A human being overwhelmed by the sacredness of a moment chooses not to eat in order to sanctify his or her communion with God and participate fully in one of life's grievous moments. Fasting is a way of processing our grief with God. Ever since the Emotionally Healthy Church series, three, I think, and a half years ago, now how many of you were around for that? That was a watershed moment in our church and very much so in my own life and my marriage and our staff. And, you know, for my wife and I, we've had a number of conversations around this, we, neither of us, one of the principles of emotional health is learning how to grieve. And neither of us grew up in a culture or in a church or in a family of origin, as great as all three of those were for both of us, that taught us how to grieve. Our family of origin, our church culture, both of which were great, the approach to grieving was basically, don't do it. It's bad, it's immature, it's a lack of faith. Like, celebrate, put on, you know, rejoice in the Lord, have a good attitude, put on some worship music, eat that casserole that people bring you every single night for a month and just like trust God and look on the bright side and be grateful and and not all of that is bad some of that is great but we started to realize that was not Jesus approach to grieving Jesus approach was literally to break out and convulse and sob right in front of everybody was to mourn was to fast was to lament all that before God so um, ever since then, we've just felt this freedom, you know, to grieve as an act of worship and as a form of prayer. But we've had so many conversations, right, babe, about how do you grieve? We've had a few sad things happen over the last couple of years, and we're there, and we're like, okay, we know we need to grieve now. What do we do? We just, like, sit and just 
really feel extra sad? Is it like that? Is it, we've literally like gone to both of our therapists and said, how we want to grieve. How do we do it? What do we just put on like sad music or what, what, how do you do this? And of course, there's not an easy answer to that, but one way is to fast. And again, if you think that's outdated or stupid, think about how lousy our culture, you think church culture is bad at it? Our secular Western culture is even worse. How bad we are at grieving. More and more when we face any kind of tragedy at a national level, the way we grieve is through venting our anger, and anger is a part of grief, it's even a healthy at times part of grief, through venting our anger on social media. That is not a healthy way to process our grief. Or we just go out and we numb our pain through substance abuse or food or alcohol or sexuality or the internet or whatever it is. What if after a Sandy Hook or a Charlottesville or an Orlando, instead of ranting on Instagram or escaping into Netflix, what if we were to fast and to pray in order to process our grief with God? On that note, reason number three, just here to encourage you, by the way, tonight. Well, we're just so happy you're here. Third is to cry out to God in a crisis. Again, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we read this. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the other people came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told him, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already this place, that is En Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, proclaimed a what? Fast for all Judah. If you know the story, this is literally genocide is a few miles away. Like Israel has no chance. This army is coming to literally wipe Israel off the map. So what? He proclaimed a fast. The people of Judah came together to, there it is, seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And the story goes on. There's a beautiful prayer. Read it in your own time. The last line of the prayer is that famous line from the Old Testament. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Or I think of Esther. When a decree, if you know the story, goes out, again, genocide, to slaughter every single Jew, male, female, young, old, in Persia, we read this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, it's the capital, and what? Fast for me, do not eat or drink for three days. So here's the, one of the few examples of no food or no water. Three days, as far as I can tell, is about as long as your body can go without water. Night or day, so full 24 hours. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law and the famous line, and if I perish, I perish. More recently, I think of um, Christopher Nolan's beautiful film, Dunkirk, from the summer. Did you all see that? If not, one of the best films of the year. And what that, it's a true story, as you all know, about a war or a battle that if we had lost, like, it would have turned the tide of the whole war. What that film does not show is what happened the day before it, on May 26, 1940, when King George called for a national day of prayer and fasting. Here's a picture of the line outside Westminster Abbey. Anybody been to London, like Big Ben's across the street? This is the line to get into church that day, to pray and to fast. 
And this is one snapshot of basically we read every single church through all of the United Kingdom was like this, people praying and fasting for a move of God. Now, what happened the next day was what we just called Dunkirk and what that entire generation all called, in all the literature, called it the miracle of Dunkirk. A number of things happened. One, that same day, uh, Churchill, who was at this prayer meeting, put out a call for all the small boats to go rescue soldiers because they thought they were going to lose hundreds of thousands of men. Two, there was a violent storm that came up along the entire French coast that grounded the German Air Force, made it so they could not kill and slaughter the army on the beach. And three, historians write, and I quote this word verbatim, an eerie calm settled over the entire English Channel that made it possible for all of these small boats to cross and rescue soldiers. Now, of course, we read that and we think, what a coincidence, or whatever. We interpret that in our secular, you know, but nobody in that day and age read it that way. Everybody read it and called it the miracle of Dunkirk. My point is there are times, ancient and modern, national and personal, when you or I are in a crisis and we need a flat-out miracle. We need a breakthrough. We need a move of God. We need something to suspend the laws of physics. If we, like, we need God to move in our life, in our church, in our city, in our nation. Next time that we face a crisis, what if instead of freaking out or again venting on social media or whatever, what if we were to fast and to pray? On that note, number four, reason number four is to change God's mind in a situation. I know that's provocative language, and I know this is a bit of a loaded idea that I don't have time to nuance out like I'd like to, but if you've been around for any length of time, you know that at Bridgetown, we don't believe that God is going to do what God is going to do with or without our prayers. We believe that it's far more complex and far more open-ended than that, that we are in a dynamic, interactive, back-and-forth relationship with God and that our prayers actually make a difference in what does or does not happen. That when you pray, some things happen, and when you don't pray, some things don't happen. Again, there's mystery, we don't get it, and I don't have time to nuance that out. Even if you disagree with that, this language of to change God's mind is right out of the Bible. Jonah chapter 3, for example, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh, proclaim a message. Jonah obeyed, went. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You think my teaching tonight is depressing? That sounds not nearly as positive. That's it. One line. That's the sermon right there. The Ninevites believed God. Listen, a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, what we miss in the English translation of this story is that phrase there at the end, turn from their evil ways, is one word in, in Hebrew. It's naham, and it's the same word that is also translated relented. Exact same word in Hebrew. It's to naham. It can be translated to relent or to repent or to change one's mind. So in the story, we more literally read, read that when God saw what they did and how they nahamed, he nahamed. Other translations have, when they changed their mind, he changed his mind. We see the exact same pattern in Joel chapter 2. Even now, declares the Lord, return, there it is in Hebrew, same word, to me with all your heart, there it is, with fasting and weeping and mourning, 
Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate. He's a loving Father, not a guilt trip, angry tyrant. He's slow to anger, abounding in love, and He relents. He nahams from selending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and naham or relent or repent or change His mind and leave behind not only not a curse but a blessing, grain offerings, drink offerings, money back from the government at tax season, whatever, for the Lord your God. You see it. Often when we naham, when we change our mind, when we turn around and change our direction, God does the exact same thing. Arthur Wallace has a great explanation of this pattern. Quote, because man repents in respect to sin, God repents in respect to judgment. Man's change of heart makes it morally possible for God to behave differently towards him, yet acting consistently with his holy character and principles. You know, we often, so often quote a beautiful prayer from Jesus at the end of his life, not my will but yours, what? Be done. That is a beautiful prayer. I pray on a regular basis. I end a lot of my prayer with it, as should you as an apprentice of Jesus. The problem is that's not the whole prayer. That's the end of the prayer. The first part of the prayer is, anybody remember? Yes, somebody over here had it. Richard, you've been a pastor for 43 years. You don't count. 53 years. Portland legend over here has the Bible memorized, but that's a whole other thing. Let this cup pass from me, which in context is Jesus, the night before his death, asking the Father if there's another way, can I not go to the cross, which is kind of like a part of Jesus' gig, you know? Like if there's a job description somewhere, like a word doc from heaven or something for the annual 360 review between the Father, the Son, the Spirit, whatever, I'm guessing that the cross is on there. And here's Jesus the night before saying, let this cup, is there any other way? I don't want to do this. Can, is there an out? Can we not plead? Wrestling with God. That's the first part of the prayer. The second part is, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. His first prayer was for God to change his mind. His second was what in the Christian tradition we call surrender. In the Buddhist tradition or in therapy we call detachment. It's this idea of entrusting what does or does not happen, entrusting all of the outcomes over to God. And it's beautiful, it's healthy, it's right, and it's mature. But it has to live in tension with our wrestling with God. Both are right. Both are true. There is a time to pray, not my will, but yours be done. There is a time to wrestle with the God of heaven and say, I won't, ta- I won't let go until you bless me, if you know that story. There is a place for both, a place for wrestling with God in fasting and in prayer. Finally, last reason or last type of prayer for which fasting is a natural ally, it's to know God's mind in a decision. Most of the time, if you're anything like me in prayer, I'm not trying to change God's mind as much as I am trying to know it. And fasting is one of the best ways I know to sharpen our mind's focus on the voice of the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, of course, that we read earlier is the classic text on this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting in that time and place of prayer, fasting, that's when the Holy Spirit said, 
set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Which that line, by the way, is the framework for not only the whole second half of Acts, but the trajectory of the church for hundreds of years to come outside of just a Jewish community to a Jew plus Gentile community outside of just Israel, but all over the Mediterranean and now across the ocean to you and me. This is why fasting is not an exclusively Christian practice. That's why it's used as far back as Confucius in China and the yogis in India, India and Zoroaster in Persia, even by all the philosophers in Greek, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates were all advocates for fasting. All of the great wisdom teachers have come, ancient, modern, east-west, have all come to realize that when you fast, your mind is sharpened to a point. The science of fasting is way over my pay grade, so at the risk of just embarrassing myself, let me read to you a quote from a medical journal that one of our elders who's a doctor sent me a few days ago. Quote, the behavioral responses to fasting are associated with increased synaptic plasticity and increased production of new neurons. That sounds good. I need more of them. That's, I think that's a good thing. From neural stem cells. It also increases levels of a brain hormone called brain-derived neurotrophic, I think that's right, factor, BDNF, you all know BDNF, a deficiency of which has been implicated in depression and various other brain problems, and it goes on. Meaning, this is my interpretation, if I'm getting this right, when you fast, your mind is less foggy and hazy, and your mind is more and more alert and aware, which for a follower of Jesus means that your mind and your imagination is more open, has a better chance of cutting through the noise and distraction and tiredness and exhaustion of life to hear the voice of God speaking over you, your present, and your future. Often before any kind of major decision, my wife and I or our elder team or our staff and I will fast and pray just asking the Spirit to clearly speak over the next step. So, there you have it. Five types of prayer for which fasting is a natural ally to repent, to grieve, to cry out to God in a crisis, to change God's mind in a situation, and to know God's mind in decision-making. I feel like we're just really set up for something bad to happen now. I don't want to read that into this teaching at all. Please, Jesus, no. That said, our practice for the week ahead is all on practicingtheway.org, fasting, I know a lot of you are new to our church. Welcome. We have, I think, upwards of 200 people in basics this afternoon who are en route to a community, which is really what our heart is here. We love the Sunday gatherings, but they are secondary. We really believe that far more important is you with 12, 15 people around a table, literally eating a meal once a week in your neighborhood and practicing the way of Jesus together, and hopefully by now you're starting to realize that we really care about this idea of practice. Neil Postman, in one of the most important books I've ever read, Amusing Ourselves to Death, writes about how in the late modern world, we all live with information overload. So don't judge me, but I read the New York Times, also known as fake news, every single day. And the running stat is that um, one edition, I don't read the whole thing every day, but one edition of the New York Times contains more information that a 17th century Englishman encountered in his entire life. So as a result, we have what Postman, who's a social theorist, calls a, quote, low information to action ratio, meaning we are conditioned by our culture from childhood to hearing lots of information and even being inspired by some of it and then doing absolutely nothing about it. As the saying goes, in one ear and what? Out the other. That is a late modern Western phenomenon. 
as a generation, we have more information about the Bible and theology and church history and the way of Jesus than any other generation ever. Yet nobody would argue that we're more Christ-like than any other generation in church history. Am I right? And that's because information is great. It's a part of my job. But information all by itself does not yield transformation. It has to not only get into your heart, it has to get past that even into your body, into your day-to-day habits, which is why we say so much about the habits of Jesus or what we call the practices or some others called the spiritual disciplines. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, said, if you take all of this, all of my teaching, all of these ideas, all of this information, and you put it into to practice, end quote, then you will do well. Now, that said, our practice for this time around is really very simple, just like don't eat for a day and pray a lot instead. Same as last week, um, set aside a day, fast, pray, ideally with your community. If you're in one or if you're not in one yet, take a few people around you to your right, to your left. Ideally, start on the night that you meet, which for most of our communities and mine is Tuesday night. So like what we did was we, start, we stopped eating Tuesday night with dinner, and we spent our night together in prayer instead of around a table. And then we all broke the fast later the next day. Some people at lunchtime, others at breakfast, others not till dinner, whatever you want. 12 hours, 24 hours, that's between you, Jesus, and your community. And this week, the idea is before you start, whenever that is for you, we encourage you to identify an area or areas in your life or our city or our church where you are hungry to hear from God or be heard by God. And when you feel a hunger pang, use it as a prompt just to pray over that area or those areas. And in the time that you would normally be eating, pray instead and watch that time add up. Like we had an interesting thing. We got done with prayer Tuesday night and Richard, who was sitting right next to me, said, oh my gosh, we've been praying. It was like an hour and a half or something like that. And it felt much shorter than that. And you'll find that when you're fasting, prayer is often a lot easier than it normally is. And you know, Richard, who is older and has a lot of experience in fasting, made an interesting observation. He said, you know, one of the things that I've come to realize is that we don't realize how much time goes into eating. It's not just the, t- the 20 minutes to wolf down your burrito or whatever. It's like meal planning and grocery shopping and driving and unloading and buying the reusable bag and forgetting the reusable bag and driving home to get the reusable bag and then feeling guilty if you have a paper bag and all of that. And then cooking and then eating and then cleaning up after and then thinking about the next meal. It's actually a lot more time than most of us think. And so you set aside all of that time when you would be eating or shopping or meal planning, and you just spend it in prayer. And every time a hunger pain comes to your body, you just use that as a way to express to God, God, I'm hungry for you to do this, that, or the other. So that's our practice for the week ahead. Now, just one last thing before we wrap up. I just want to make this crystal clear because we have so much emphasis on practice. Fasting, and this is true of any of the practices of Jesus, is not a formula to get what you or I want from God. So often we even approach our apprenticeship to Jesus with this kind of what can I get out of it mindset or mentality, and some of that's just human. But the reality is sometimes the practices of Jesus don't work very well. Sometimes you fast and you encounter God, and you hear God prophetically speaking over your life, and you're praying about a thing, and then you get an email about that exact same thing, and it's like, what time? Oh my gosh, it's the same time, the email timestamp is like this miracle, it's like your mini Dunkirk moment thing, or whatever. And other times, you set aside a whole day to fast and pray, and you just feel kind of hangry all day long, 
and you kind of like lose your temper with your children and you just can't wait for it to be over and you just obsess about Chipotle all day long. The same is true for all of the practices. Sometimes you Sabbath and you just feel rest come into the marrow of your bones and pass that to your soul. Other times you just crash and you feel kind of grouchy and you kind of lose your temper with your 12-year-old and then you kind of feel like a lousy dad. Hypothetical scenario. I don't know about this. This wasn't yesterday. This was somebody else some other time, right? The practices aren't, listen, we just have to be honest about this. They don't always work. They aren't formulaic and that is a good thing. If they were, our relationship with Jesus would devolve down to a transaction. So here's my thing. I pray and read my Bible every single day. I have a meal with my community on Tuesday night. I fast every Wednesday. I Sabbath every Saturday, and I go to church every Sunday, unless if it's Super Bowl Sunday, right? Like, that's, that's my thing. And as a result, God, you give me emotional health and spiritual life. Now, please don't mishear me. You know I am so passionate about the practices of Jesus, so passionate about the discipline, so passionate about schedule and habits and all of that. And there is for sure a correlation and connection between the practices and emotional health and spiritual life. But they don't, we just have to be honest, they don't always work the way we want. And that's actually a good thing. But that said, over time, they have a cumulative effect that adds up to a net positive. The best analogy I can think of, and it's flawed, but is every Thursday night, Tammy and I over here um, go on a date. Some of you are young married couples like you guys. Every night is date night before you have kids. It's like, what's date night? That's just like every night. It's life. It's post work, right? Once you have children, just things change. So just enjoy it, all right? So you have to set aside time because life is busy and we're working a job and we're raising three children and we're living in the city and like there's just life. And so we have to set aside time dedicated time just for us to go share a meal if we run out of money or it's a five-week month coffee whatever and or a walk sometimes but just time to be together and sometimes it's amazing sometimes we sit across from the table and we have an amazing meal and we connect and there's in-depth conversation and we bear our soul to each other and we feel moved and we connect at a soul level we go home just thinking man i feel more in love now than i can ever remember 16 years in other times, it's not like that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something else. <laughs> other, t- <laughs> other times, hypothetical scenario, again, let, let's say there was a couple. Let's say um, the wife was a type one on the Enneagram and a perfectionist and a little critical and kind of got grouchy once in a while. And not me. This is not me at all. And let's say you had an emotionally exhausting week uh, last week, and Thursday night, let's just say you got in a tiff. There are times when it's not like that. You go out, you eat a meal, and it's whatever. You talk, and you catch up, and it's a thing, and you go home, and it is what it is. But we still do it. Thursday night, I was exhausted. a long, hard week. We're there. We're, like, literally debating at the last minute. Should we go or not? Because I know I'm just kind of tired and grouchy. The answer was, of course, yes. Because you create space space for what matters most to you. You create space for a relationship with somebody you care about more than anybody else. Sometimes it's amazing, other times it's not. But you know that over time it has a cumulative effect that adds up to a net positive. And you know we don't have to do it. There's no command like in the marriage manual to have a weekly date night. 
There's no command anywhere in the Bible or the teachings of Jesus to fast. You don't have to do this. But we know that in the busyness of our life, in our city, with three children, living, all of that, we need to set aside. We need this practice. We need this discipline to order our life around our relationship. That's the best analogy. All analogies break down at some point. But I think for any of the practices or any of the spiritual disciplines, they are ways that we create space for relationship, for what matters most to us. They're not a formula. Sometimes it's a, you read your Bible and pray, and it's amazing. Other times, eh. But over time, it does something to you. You, through relationship to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, you are transformed, and out of that, your life is transformed. So just keep at it. There's a saying at the end, I've been reading a lot about AA recently, just a lot of fascination there. It started as a discipleship thing. There's a saying, there's a lot of, so many great, some, some of you are in AA, and you know there's so many great sayings. One of them is, keep coming back, it works. And that's the short version. I think the long version is, keep coming back, it works if you work it, right? That's so good. And often at the end of an AA meeting, they'll say that, keep coming back, it works. What if we were just to say that every morning when we got done reading through Leviticus? Keep coming back. It works. <laughs> Read through the Bible in a year. At the end of church, keep coming back. It works. At the end of a meal with our community, keep coming back. At the end of day of prayer and fasting, keep coming back. It works if you work it, so work it because you're worth it. I think that's the full line right there. It's so good. Man, so I just, I just, I know, I just want to end by saying it's not a hunger strike, it's not a formula. But keep following Jesus. It works. Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join the Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.